Hey, this is Philip Craig here. I'm the pastor of Aria Church. This is our podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this empowers you. I hope it fuels your faith and I hope it impacts your life. Enjoy the message. So last week you probably thought Phil had wrapped up the David and Goliath series as we'd left Goliath dead and David in a pretty good place because he was set to receive riches and the king's daughter to to marry. But have you ever noticed that often whenever we win a victory, more attacks start to come? That whenever you tackle a giant, it seems that then all sorts of new problems start to spring up. We can see a breakthrough and something great happens and it can be tempting to want to bask in the glow of that for a while to ease off and enjoy the victory. But often that's when we end up being most vulnerable. So this morning, I want to look at what happened to David after Goliath. You see, almost immediately, things start falling apart for David. And I want to give you a bit of a fair warning as a heads up. See, Phil has spent four weeks looking at one afternoon of David's life, and I'm trying to cover about 40 years of his life. So I hope no one's anything planned between now and the baptisms. (laughs) Now, obviously, the last baptism service, we completely ran out of seats. So if I can preach all the way through to this next one, you're all sorted. (laughs) So when we look at the Bible, it's good to do a mix of deep dives and wide overviews because the deep dives help us dig deep into God's word, into all the rich truths that there are in in each page. But the, the wide overviews help us see the bigger picture of redemption that God's invited us all to be part of. So every word of God's Bible is breathed by him. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And it would be great to be able to to go deep and really unpack each and every word. But there's 1,189 chapters. So based on the pace that Phil looked at 1 Samuel 17, (laughs) that would take us 91 and a half years. And not to be too pessimistic, but I can't see too many people out there that are going to be around for that long. (laughs) Sorry, folks. Um, Obviously, that also highlights the importance of us not just relying on Phil to spoon speed us once a week, but we have to get stuck into the Word each and every day. Because if we just read one chapter a day for ourselves, that'll only take us three years to get through the Bible. And don't tell anyone senior in heaven when you get there that I told you this, but in the Old Testament, there's, there's lots of lists of names and places and land divisions that you can skim over. So you'll get through it a lot quicker than three years, really. The Bible is our weapon for the battle. It's our sword for the fight. And just as David knew his weapon well, just as he'd spent years practicing in the field with his sling, we need to get to know our weapon. So get familiar with it. This morning, it's a bit of a whistle-stop overview of the next section of David's life, because killing Goliath was obviously a major event in David's life, but he was still relatively young whenever that happened. And as a side note, I had the harsh reality slammed home to me this week by the age limit on Danica's young adults group that I'm no longer in the relatively young category. But David still had years of life left to live. So immediately after the battle, he started on a journey back home and he was going home with Saul because Saul was giving him honor at this stage. Saul was pleased with the victory that David had won. And the people begin to sing the praises of David. As they go through the various villages and cities, women come out to sing celebratory songs, rejoicing in the fact that the Philistine nation had been defeated. But look with me at the lyrics that they sang, recorded for us in 1 Samuel 18, verse 7. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. So it was understandable. David had won a significant victory, and the people were going to sing and celebrate. 
But as you can imagine, that didn't go down too well with King Saul. It would be like if at the end of the service, the band came back up and started singing, Phil has preached well for us, but Peter has preached better. <laughs> it wouldn't go down well with Phil, and we'd probably have a new look worship team next week. But to reassure Phil, I've, I've checked with the band, and they're not going to do that. I even tried bribing Dylan with coffee, but he wasn't budging. So immediately right after David has killed Goliath, there's this tension set up between him and Saul. 1 Samuel 18 verses 8 and 9 tell us that Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. Saul eyed David from that day on. You see, whenever we kill a giant, it can make people jealous. People who haven't had the same victories and success that we have can be jealous. It's such a Northern Irish thing to immediately try to tear down anyone that's got any sort of success. And I think that comes from insecurity. Saul was insecure in his identity. He'd placed all of his wealth and well-being in being the king, in being the best, rather than in being a child of God. And we need to remember that our identity is first and foremost that we're children of God. When we remember that, we don't see the success of others as a threat to our security. We get to share in their success. We aren't competing for God's love. He loves us with an unfailing love for who we are, not for what we've done. If we see another church get 10,000s and we only attract thousands, we can celebrate that church rather than get jealous. And let's face it, if we did attract 10,000 here, I think Billy would have a hard time getting them all into the car park. <laughs> the next issue that crops up for David is with regards to him being allowed to marry Saul's daughter. You see, Saul's oldest daughter was called Merib, and that was who Saul had promised to David. But he starts adding in extra terms and conditions that he has to go off and fight other battles. And in the end, Saul gives Merib to someone else to marry. So David ends up having to marry Saul's second daughter, Michal, but he also had to pay Saul a little bit of an extra price for that, and you can read about that for yourself in 1 Samuel 18 verses 25 to 27, but preferably not in an illustrated Bible. If you've read that passage before, you'll know, um, and you can ask Phil any questions you have about that later once you've looked it up. So there was then a lengthy period of exile for David where due to Saul's jealousy, he had to flee. He had to live in exile, and this only ended whenever Saul died. So there was about 20 chapters of the Bible between when Samuel first anointed David as king and whenever David ascended to the throne, a span of about 15 years. 15 years when David was in fear of his life, when he was on the run, when he had no permanent home, and when he was always looking out over the shoulder for attempts by Saul to kill him. So what does all of this teach us? Well, my first point is the battle is ongoing. It shows us there will be ups and downs on the Christian journey. It's not just about killing the giant once. It's not just about raising your hand one time at the end of a service. We have to take up our cross daily. David didn't just pick up his sling once. He continued to pick up his weapon each day. And we have to choose each day to follow Jesus. David had ongoing struggles, even though he'd been anointed king. We're not promised a life free from struggle, but we're reminded that David had God with him, helping him through the struggle. And we too have God, the Holy Spirit, guiding, strengthening, and supporting us. We're not left to face the world alone. We don't fight in our own strength, but in the mighty strength of God. This side of eternity, the battle will keep on going. We may tackle Goliath, but the opposition will keep mounting up. I don't say that to discourage you, but to encourage you to keep your guard up because we can't afford to become complacent after a victory. For now, the battle goes on, but we know the end of the story. We've seen the last chapter. We know that Jesus ultimately gets the victory. We can't just bask in the glory victories of old. 
you probably all know someone who at school played a bit of rugby or Gaelic and they like to go on about it and even now. I've been there. People ask me sometimes if I've played sport at school and I'll happily tell them about my rugby career. But I'll, I don't know why you're laughing. I'll not necessarily mention the fact that I played as a substitute for the C team. There's, there's even a few footballers here who still go on about the wonder goals they scored 20 years ago or more. Isn't that right, Mob? For us, putting our faith in Jesus is the best thing we can do, but it's not the end of the story. It's only the start. We have to keep growing in faith. We haven't been called to make a one-time decision. We've been called to a lifelong commitment of obedience in the one direction. The second point we need to think about is the fact that David had to spend years in exile. We need to have patience during this season of waiting. At one stage, David even had to disguise himself as a madman to hide. It would have required significant patience for David to wait and to faithfully trust that God was going to do what he said he would do. I don't know about you, but for me, patience can be a bit of a struggle. I like instant results. I hate waiting in traffic. If I'm driving somewhere, I want to get there quickly. Sitting in the motorway at Spursfield on a morning at eight o'clock is just agony for me. I don't mind driving distances, but I like to be actually moving, not sitting stationary. And I actually saw a study in the British Medical Journal recently that they looked at doctors in Florida that I can relate to. They were looking to see what type of doctor got the most speeding tickets, and they found out that actually the most speeding tickets were given to psychiatrists. <laughs> so maybe it's just a trait that comes with my choice of career. The same study also actually showed that of the doctors who were speeding, psychiatrists were the least likely to be driving a luxury car. And they didn't specify what qualified as a luxury car, but I'm pretty sure my Corsa doesn't qualify. <laughs> so David gives us a lesson in patience. He shows us what it means to wait on God's timing. He didn't lose faith in what God had promised. Often, we can try to rush on ahead, but God has a reason for keeping us waiting. If I had tried to just put the foot down on the motorway, I'd end up with a smashed bumper, and it wouldn't be good for the person in front of me either. God always has a plan and a purpose. He doesn't just leave us waiting for no reason. Maybe he's using the season of waiting to prepare us for what's to come. If David had gone straight from the field to the throne, he wouldn't have been ready. He wouldn't have had the experience or the wisdom to rule a nation. He wouldn't have had the training to lead an army. But David didn't spend the time that he was waiting in exile, just sitting, waiting. He didn't passively sit back. He actively waited. He took steps to prepare. He gathered a group of men. He got experience leading them. He fought battles. He invested in his relationship with God. He used the time to prepare and ensure that when the day came for his coronation, he would be ready. And that's an important lesson for us. It might be easy to grumble about being made to wait, but maybe we need to see the seasons of waiting as an opportunity to grow and develop the character we need in order to ensure that we're ready for whatever God has planned for us. Speaking from my own personal experience, obviously at the moment, Cherif and I are in a season of waiting. We know that a baby's on the way, but it's not here yet. We have to wait. And the waiting process can be tough because we've known for several months and there's still a couple of months to wait. But the waiting is necessary. Obviously, the baby needs time to grow and develop to be ready for life in the outside world. But we too need time to prepare. If a letter had arrived several months ago saying that we were having a baby and it would be delivered Amazon Prime style the next day, we wouldn't have been ready. Might have been easier for Cherif than the actual what's going to happen, but we wouldn't have had anything for it. We would have had nowhere for the baby to sleep, no nappies or clothes for it to wear, no pram to push it around in, and no car seat to take it places. The season of waiting is vital in order to get everything in order and get ready. So what does it look like to actively wait? 
You might have heard the cliche slogan, dress for the job you want to have rather than the job you have right now. And for us, as we actively wait, we should dress spiritually for the future God is calling us to. We need to clothe ourselves in compassion, in kindness, in humility, in meekness, in patience, in forgiveness, and in love. Just as David used the season of waiting to grow in maturity, so should we. What we're doing right now might not be what we want to do ultimately with our life, but if we're not faithful with what God has given us now, he's not gonna give us the bigger opportunities we crave. If David hadn't been faithful with the small group of guys that he was leading, I doubt God would have let him lead the whole nation of Israel. And this principle, it's how we operate as a church. Maybe you aspire to be up here one day, preaching or leading worship. It doesn't happen by just sitting back and passively waiting. Just like David took steps to prepare, so can we. Maybe it'll look like sharing an encouragement with our team in pre-service, joining a group, or maybe stepping up and offering to lead a group in the next season of groups. While we wait, we don't sit around waiting. We take steps. We get ready so when the moment comes and God gives us the opportunity, we're prepared. So as we move to the final part, and obviously if anyone's listened to any sermons before, you'll know when someone says that, that they're just coming to the final part of the introduction. (laughs) Some of you might be familiar with a later part of David's story from Sunday school, or maybe even from the classic Leonard Cohen song, Hallelujah, that time when he saw her bathing on the roof and her beauty in the moonlight overthrew him. I'm obviously referring to the Bathsheba incident, recorded in 2 Samuel 11. It would be impossible to do an overview of David's life without mentioning this incident. And this incident being recorded for us in the Bible is just proof that God wrote it, that we can trust it, because if it was written by man, they would probably airbrush this sort of stuff out. But this shows the reality of life. So reading from 2 Samuel 11, starting at verse one. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rahab, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So firstly, in those verses, we notice David wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. It says that this was the season when kings went to battle, but David had stayed at home. He was neglecting his duty. You see, sin can be defined as an act of rebellion against God's perfect will. It can sometimes be called a trespass in the Bible. And growing up as a child in a church of Ireland where we said the Lord's Prayer each week in the traditional wording where you prayed, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive, against, as we forgive those who trespass against us. I got confused because I knew what trespassing was, but I also knew I was a good child and I never went into my neighbor's garden or went into a shop that I wasn't allowed to be in. And why was God so concerned about people walking where they weren't allowed anyway? Surely he had more important things to worry about, like if I was arguing with my brothers or lying to my parents. But thankfully, I now know better. In a biblical setting, trespassing means not just going beyond your right to be somewhere, but beyond your right to act. It means any violation of moral or civil law. We hopefully don't go roaming through our neighbor's gardens without permission, but we're all guilty of trespassing against God, of sinning, of missing the mark, and falling short of his standards. 
David was guilty of not acting on his kingly duty to go to war. He'd had all the preparation in the season of exile. He was ready for it, but now he had a throne to sit on and he was enjoying the comfort of royal life. And that can so easily happen to us as well, that we get comfortable in life, we settle down, we were called to be fishers of men, but instead we choose to be watchers of binge. David didn't go where he should have been, but he took it further. He went where he shouldn't have been. He went onto the roof, looked out and saw Bathsheba. And that's where things go downhill rapidly. He didn't do the right thing and look away. He didn't avert his gaze, he kept looking. He noticed that she was beautiful and he made arrangements to have her brought to him. And that was the way the evil kings in the region operated. If they saw someone that they liked, they took them and used them. It wasn't the way for God's people. As God's people, we're called to a higher standard. We can't just be like everyone around us. We've called to be set apart, to be holy, just as God is holy. There's a lesson for us there. We need to be aware of where we're vulnerable. You see, for most of his life, David had a group of mighty men with him. He did life in group. But for whatever reason, at this point, he was on the roof alone, and that was where he was vulnerable. He took his eyes off God's plan for his life and let his gaze be captivated by some naked flesh. So maybe the lesson for us is that we need to find our mighty men, our group that will hold us accountable and point out our blind spots. If you don't think you have any flaws or failures, just try getting married, your spouse will soon find them for you. Or maybe for others of us, it's that we need to start being those mighty men or mighty women that hold our friends to account whenever we see them straying into habits or lifestyle choices that they should be fleeing from. You see, sin is oppor often opportunistic. David probably wasn't planning on committing adultery when he went for that fateful rooftop walk. But in an opportunistic moment, sin came knocking at the door and David didn't do what he should have done. He should have fled, but instead he opened the door. And if we're trying to faithfully serve God, we shouldn't be surprised if temptation comes our way because if there's one thing the devil hates, it's people who are active in their faith and he's gonna to try to disqualify us through sending temptation our way. We shouldn't be surprised and we need to have a plan to handle it. And the best approach is to make sure each day we're keeping our eye fixed on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. So David ends up with Bathsheba pregnant, and this was a major problem because Bathsheba was married to Uriah, one of the elite soldiers, and Uriah, he was being faithful to his duty. He was out to battle. David knew that whenever Uriah came home, if he noticed that Bathsheba was pregnant, he would soon be able to do the maths and work out that things didn't quite add up. So David had to try to cover his tracks and he made arrangements for Uriah to come home and visit his wife. But when Uriah came home, he still refused to spend the night with Bathsheba, telling David that it wouldn't be right for him to enjoy himself while there was a war on and men were fighting. That would have been a stinging blow for David, who'd been guilty of doing just that. But David was blind at this stage to his own guilt. Often, we can be blind to our failures, and that's why it's important that we do life in group, that we come to church, and that we don't just go off our own way. So David tries a more sinister approach. He gets Uriah drunk. He takes him to the Jerusalem equivalent of Tipplers and gets the buckfast flowing. But even under the influence, Uriah is a man of honor and integrity. He still sticks to his principle that it would be wrong for him to go and indulge himself whilst the men under his command are risking it on the battlefield. Or at least that's how he portrays it to David the next morning. It could just have been that he was that inebriated he couldn't find his way home. So David is in a dilemma. Uriah won't visit his wife, which means that once she, go, once she gives birth, he'll know that she's been unfaithful, and if he challenges her, she could just expose David. So David comes up with a final, ultimate solution. He sends Uriah back to the battle, and this time he gives him a letter to take to Joab with a new deployment strategy, one where he's to be sent to the front line 
in the heart of the battle and then left there isolated with no backup or support. It's a 1917-style death mission, but with absolutely no hope of survival and no chance of an Oscar. The plan succeeds. Uriah is struck down and killed. What began with David neglecting his duty has now resulted in an extramarital affair, a child conceived out of wedlock, and the death of an innocent man. And that's always the pattern with sin. It starts small, but once it's taken root in our lives, it grows, it takes over, it spirals, and it escalates. That's why it's so vital that we deal with it at the small stage. Even though it might initially seem harmless to us, it will always start to grow. It's the same way as if a doctor notices a tumor, they're always going to operate to get it out as soon as they can, rather than letting it grow. So once Bathsheba had grieved for her husband, David brought her to his house and took her as his wife. To David, it seemed he'd now successfully covered his tracks and gotten away with it. But verse 27 of chapter 11 tells us, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You see, no matter how well we think we've covered our tracks and kept everything hidden, God sees us. God knows us. We can't keep secrets from him. We can put on our nice, happy, holy Christian mask for coming to church, but God's seen the depths of our hearts. He knows our internet history. He knows where we were last night, who we were with and what we were up to. He knows how many times we lost our temper with the kids in the car and the drive here. He knows what was going through our mind as the worship team launched into the chorus for the 15th time. <laughs> and here's the crazy thing. God knows all this and he still loves us. He knows all our fears and fl flaws and he still loves us. He knows our darkest secrets and he still loves us. He knows our hidden sins, the stuff that would make us blush if it was broadcast to anyone here and he still loves us. Even though David had messed up, in such a significant way, God still loved him. Even though we all mess up and we all fall short of God's standards, he still loves us. It was while we were still dead in sin that Jesus came to die for us. Jesus came to the world not for the sake of people who were perfect and had it all together, but for sinners, mess-ups and failures like you and me. But just because David was loved by God, his sin couldn't be overlooked. God sent the prophet Nathan to rebuke him, and initially David remained blind to the fact that he was guilty. So David is told by Nathan, you are the man. Why have you despised the word of God to do what is evil in his sight? Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. So that's in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And it's after Nathan rebukes him that David does then repent. We may not have sinned as spectacularly as David did, but we all sin. We all fail to follow God perfectly. You may not have had an affair and you hopefully haven't arranged someone's death, but we can all miss the mark in one way or another, and all sin carries with it the same judgment, for it's all rebellion against our holy God. David's sin wasn't primarily against Bathsheba or Uriah. His sin was against God. All sin is an offense against God. It leaves us cut off from God, and the punishment for sin is death. David sinned and messed up, but the good news is that there was forgiveness. Which brings us to our final point, actual final point this time. No matter what you've done, there is forgiveness. After Nathan rebuked David, he repented. He cried out to God and asked for forgiveness, and his prayer of forgiveness is recorded for us in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. 
Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You see, David took ownership of his sin. He didn't try to blame anyone else for it. He acknowledged his guilt. There was forgiveness for David when he cried out to God, and there's forgiveness for us too. No matter what we've done, we have a God with abundant mercy, who's ready to blot out our transgressions. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to humble himself, to come down to death, to the indignity of death on a cross, to be pierced for our transgressions, so that by his wounds we can be saved. We get washed whiter than snow, not by hyssop, but by the crimson red blood of Jesus. He loved us and freed us from our sins by his death. We're clothed in a righteousness we don't deserve and could never hope to earn because of the steadfast love, grace, and abundant mercy of God. There's redemption available for all of us, no matter what we've done, forgiveness for all our trespasses, according to the riches of God's great grace. We don't have to bargain, plead, bribe, or pay for our forgiveness. Jesus has already paid for it in full through the death on the cross. After all that David went through in his life, he was still called a man after God's heart. The good news of the gospel is that no matter what we've done, there's still the promise of forgiveness and acceptance in the cross. Nothing can disqualify us from the offer of grace that's found at the cross. The story of David reminds us that God is gracious. He doesn't love us based on our merits, but based on his grace. David responded to that grace with humble, dependent love for God, and we have to follow that example. We must respond personally to God's grace ourselves. We have to remember it's against God and God only that we've sinned. We must, like David, cry out to God for forgiveness, as through the blood of Jesus, we can be washed whiter than snow. David was Israel's greatest king, but, he, but because of his flaws and failures, he still leaves us yearning for a better king. The story of David reminds us that we shouldn't put our hope in a man or a woman. All human leaders will let us down. The best of men are just men at best. No matter how great a politician, a political leader, a pastor or a sports captain is, they'll all fail us. They'll all make mistakes. They'll all mess up. We shouldn't be surprised when it happens because they're human, just like us. And we all have struggles. We all mess up. None of us are perfect. If it happened to David, a man after God's own heart, it can happen to us too. We're ultimately called not to follow the example of David, but of King Jesus, the true and better David. David faced the betrayal of a king, not giving him the wife he'd been promised, but Jesus faced the ultimate betrayal of being sold to death on a cross for 30 pieces of silver. David gave in to temptation, but Jesus never gave in to temptation. He never took advantage of others. David neglected his duty to lead in battle and instead stayed in the safety and comfort of the palace. But Jesus stepped down from the throne of heaven and leads us using his royal power to protect us, laying down his life on the cross to save us. David killed a giant on the battlefield, but Jesus has tackled the greatest of all giants, the curse of sin. David cried out to God for forgiveness for his own sin, but Jesus cries out to God as our advocate for the forgiveness of our sins.
David's sin brought death to his family, but our death has been paid for in full by the death of Jesus. So I, I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's just a few things I'd like you to do. Subscribe to our podcast so the most recent message will always be in your feed. Secondly, if this ministry has impacted you and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, you can go onto our website at ariatchurch.org and give now. And we will see you next time on the Ariat Church Podcast.